Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hey listeners, I want to let you know about The Report, which comes to theaters starting November 15th. The film is based on the real-life investigation of the CIA's secret detention and interrogation program, which was created in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. We're bringing you a special episode of Stay Tuned next Tuesday, the 12th, where I speak with Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist Mark Mazzetti. And remember to go see the Amazon original motion picture, The Report, starring Adam Driver, Annette Bening, and John Hamm, in theaters November 15th and on Prime Video November 29th. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I make a lot of films about self-deception, and as I like to point out, self-deception affects everybody, including me. (laughs) I'm not immune. That's Errol Morris. He's an Oscar-winning director and author, known for his cinematic portrayals of controversial and complicated figures like former secretaries of defense Robert McNamara in The Fog of War and Donald Rumsfeld in The Unknown Known famous physicist Stephen Hawking, and now former White House strategist and executive chairman of Breitbart News, Steve Bannon. The film is called American Dharma. Morris and I talk about how he chooses his subjects, the perils of I want my mommy politics, why Trump is able to weather all sorts of scandals, and how he can be appalled by Bannon and like Bannon at the same time. That's coming up. Stay tuned. My name is Gabriel Patterson, and I had a question to ask Preet. When Gordon Sondland updated his testimony, is that an admission that he was lying in his first testimony? I'd like to know if you think that that's a potential for perjury. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Gabriel, thanks for your question. Obviously, you're referring to Gordon Sondland, the American ambassador to the European Union, who came in and testified to a bunch of things. And then, lo and behold, when other testimony came out, and he presumably had a chance to look at that other testimony, shockingly, his recollection was refreshed, and he came back into the Congress, and he looked at his old testimony, and has provided a multiple-page addendum. So it's an interesting question. Does the new testimony that contradicts the original testimony, does that represent an admission of perjury? Well, people are more clever than that. And you will very rarely find a situation where somebody will admit to having lied previously. I'll give you an example of that in a moment that you'll remember because it's a famous one. But in this case, what Silent has done, which is something a lot of people do who testify, and we've talked about it a number of times already, is they will not say that they lied. They will say they remembered something new. And it's a much more difficult thing to prove that someone was not telling the truth when they said they didn't recall something or that their recollection was refreshed. And so in this instance, he came back fairly quickly. You know, months didn't go by. Days and weeks perhaps went by, but months didn't go by. And he, on his own, presumably without being threatened with any sanction or criminal charge, or there even being noticed that he was being investigated for potentially lying to Congress, he, of his own accord, came back and amended his testimony to say, well, now he recalls having conversations that make much more clear that something was offered for something in return in connection with the president 
in the White House and Ukraine. There have been times when people have been charged, even though they have said they couldn't remember something, when the facts and circumstances surrounding the fact make that impossible to believe. I guess the analogy some people use with respect to the Sondland testimony is, well, if somebody robs a bank and then returns the money later, isn't it still a crime to have robbed the bank? And I suppose that's true so far as it goes. But with these kinds of cases, meaning perjury or making false statements to Congress or to law enforcement, it is the rare case in which people find the interests of justice are served by prosecuting somebody who fairly quickly, whether for good reasons or bad reasons, comes forward, makes the whole truth plain, amends testimony, and kind of falls on their sword, even without admitting lying. Now, that said, the new testimony better be ironclad, correct and true and right, because you don't get that many bites at the apple. And what's an example of an instance where someone talked to Congress, lied to Congress, then admitted the lie? Well, a great example of that is Michael Cohen, the former lawyer of the President of the United States, who decided when he wanted to get some benefit for cooperating with the United States government, admitted that his testimony about various things to the Congress was false. And so in a manner of speaking, that testimony was corrected, but that was in connection with a full-on felony criminal case against him by my former office the Southern District of New York. That's how you often see that work. My name is Joan. I'm calling from the Bay Area, California. Thank you for your straight-talking show. I love it. And um, my question is, have you given any thought to what you think Robert Mueller must be thinking about this whole impeachment inquiry and the issues with Ukraine? Thanks a lot. Bye. Joan, that's an interesting question. What is Bob Mueller thinking about all of this? Well, you know, there's some things that probably members of the special counsel team are scratching their heads about one of which is part of the Ukraine scandal, centers on this obsession on the part of the president and some of his allies that it was Ukraine that's responsible for the hacking of the DNC server and that the server still resides somewhere in Ukraine. And all sorts of conspiracy theories that have been pushed by Paul Manafort in the past that are now coming to light in connection with the impeachment inquiry. And that might cause some head scratching, as you might imagine, because the special counsel's office, led by Robert Mueller, found pretty conclusively and definitively that it was the Russians who were responsible for this conduct in fact, charged a number of Russian nationals for those offenses. So I'm sure that's of interest to them. But my shorter answer is Bob Mueller has done his time, has done his service in a number of different ways. And so I wouldn't be surprised if rather than following daily the ins and outs of the impeachment inquiry, he's fishing somewhere. This question comes in an email from BG in Atlanta, where I'm going December 4th to talk with Sally Yates on stage. Get your tickets, cafe.com slash tour. Okay, enough plug. Hi, Preet. Trump seems to be using his released transcript of the perfect call to Zelensky as a large part of his defense. Yet Lieutenant Colonel Vindman confirmed in his testimony last week that there were key omissions in that released transcript. Would it not be possible for House investigators to get the actual transcript of the call from the secure server on which it supposedly resides? Would seem a logical step in the investigation. Thanks. So that's a great question. My understanding is, from the reporting and from other sources, is that the only thing we have about the call, this July 25th call that the president keeps referring to as perfect and also beautiful between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine, is one, this readout that has been provided, and second, other people's recollections who listened to the call, and maybe one or more of them might have made their own notes. But that's it. It's my understanding that there is not actually a full recording, voice recording of the phone call, nor is there a full verbatim transcript of the phone call. And perhaps that's why the president keeps relying on the transcript. One aside, something that in the sea of lies and the sea of misstatements that the president makes, for some reason, sticks in my craw because it's so blatant. 
Trump keeps saying that there is a verbatim transcript of his call with Zelensky. Verbatim, he says. Not just beautiful, not just perfect, but set forth in this verbatim transcript. And literally on the front page of that readout, there's a disclaimer that says, this is not a verbatim transcript. So putting that aside for a moment, I don't know that they're going to get other information about the call that's neutral. In other words, that's objective, as opposed to what people's recollections are. And there's been some disagreement. As you point out, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman has a view that something's remitted from this transcript that we've seen. His recollection appears to be that there was a specific reference to Burisma, which is the company on which Hunter Biden served on the board. Another witness testified recently, Tim Morrison, also a White House staffer. Generally speaking, he said the readout was complete and correct. So there will be competing recollections about that. I don't know how they'll be resolved, but I think over time, the weight of the evidence will fall on the side of the majority of the witnesses. If a lot of witnesses say that there are things that were excluded, then hopefully that will be more persuasive to people who are considering the facts. You know, one other thing to remind us of is it appears that the call lasted a substantial period of time, and the readout that we've seen so far indicates a call that lasted for a shorter period of time, which would suggest, based on how these things are recorded for posterity in writing, that there are some omissions. Now, whether those omissions are nefarious or not, people have their points of view. And I think that if it turns out that the weight of evidence supports the fact that Burisma was taken out, I guess you could have that view. But then other people point out, if someone was really going to go to the trouble of being nefarious and scrubbing that readout, there's other things they would have scrubbed out too. (laughs) Not just the identity of the company that Hunter Biden served on the board of. My guest this week is Errol Morris. You might recognize his name from an impressive roster of documentary films, unusually cinematic portraits of complicated and controversial figures. Morris has made films of people like former Secretaries of Defense Robert McNamara and Donald Rumsfeld. His most recent work, American Dharma, profiles arguably one of the most influential figures of the 2016 Trump campaign and administration, Steve Bannon. Bannon was also on the boards of Breitbart News and Cambridge Analytica. While Bannon is no longer physically in the White House, his effect on the Trump administration and the Trump campaign remains. We talk about why Morris doesn't believe in adversarial interviews, whether figures like Bannon should be deplatformed, the future of rational thinking, and the most nefarious thing the Trump administration has done to date. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, and delivering your product, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. But that's hard to do with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing. So to reduce costs and headaches, 
smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a top-rated cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. Just a quick heads up, folks. In this episode, Errol Morris gets really real in his discussion with me, and there's, you know, a bit of profanity. Just be forewarned if that's the kind of thing that bothers you or if you happen to be listening with your children. Errol Morris, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. It's a, pleasure. It's a pleasure for me. We've never met before, so I'm, I'm glad we're getting this time together. So, you know, I never know exactly what I'm going to ask first. Sometimes I do, often I don't. I sort of wait to meet the guest. We have a conversation, something pops into my head, or someone will feed me a question. Right before we came on, you made a statement that occurred to me, maybe that's my first question. You said, the worst day of my life was the day I became literate. Indeed, that's what I said. And what did you mean by that? Let's take it literally, for God's sake. If someone had told me that this was going to open the door to a lifetime of sorrow, of unending, incessant, unmediated reading, I could have just simply said, no, thank you. Don't you get some joy from reading, too? Oh, I probably do. You probably, long pause. (laughs) But you still read. Yeah, I read compulsively. Yeah, so why? Because I like learning new stuff. Mm -hmm. The bad stuff? You like learning bad stuff? Of course. Yeah. Doesn't everybody? Is there a book that has brought you only joy? Many of them. I have an office just filled. I don't know. Maybe there's seven or 8,000 volumes in there now. It's a big office. It's a big office. (laughs) Lucky you. Someone came and said, have you read all of these? And I said, well, I'm glad you asked. As it turns out, I haven't read any of them. (laughs) You possess them. I had read an article years ago in the Weekly World News, which I subscribed to. I had this claim that I was the only person who subscribed to the Weekly World News (laughs) and to the London Review of Books, which might be true. Can't prove it. Yeah. I'd like to see the Venn diagram. Absolutely. And there was an article in the Weekly World News, How to Look Smart if You're Really Stupid, (laughs) which I used to have on my wall for a while. I thought it was... It was one of the items by 8,000 books? One of the items. See, you're not so far (laughs) away. One was to have a lot of books carry around a big fat book with you also. Drink a lot of coffee. Wear glasses. Wear glasses. You're bespectacled See, you're ahead of me with all of this. You obviously read the same article. I use use all these same tricks because, you know, what do I know? So literacy, I assume you also are literate. Barely. (laughs) Barely literate. You know, I rely on other people telling me what's in stuff a lot. Don't we all? Don't we all? God bless them. So you're one of the most accomplished documentary filmmakers in America. Really? People have told me that. I mean, I've not read that, but people have told me. (laughs) People who've done the actual primary reading have told me this. And I've seen many of your films, and I've seen your most recent one, which we will talk about at some length. It's called American Dharma. Yes. Interesting to me because the title includes a word of Indian origin, Dharma. And it's about 
But I'll say the subject of it, and I'll ask you what it's about. The subject of the film is Steve Bannon, whom some people credit with electing Donald Trump president of the United States. Why the title and why him? Why him is not a difficult question. He was all over the place. Fire and Fury had just come out. I had read the book, See the Literacy Problem Again. Yeah, although that was not literature. Eh, it was a good read. <laughs> okay. Josh Green had just published a book on Bannon, Devil's Disciple. I read that too. More problems because of literacy. And I thought I should interview this guy. For someone to be a subject of yours of a movie, do they need to be consequential or interesting or both? Neither. Neither. I like all kinds of stories and how and why I pick them. Your guess is probably as good as mine. It's a bit on whim? It's very much on whim. So Steve Bannon fits what criteria for you? Political guy. <laughs> Bad guy. <laughs> possibly crazy. I do respond to that because I too might possibly be crazy. I'll let you know. Thank you. You have said about Steve Bannon, quote, I'm appalled by Bannon, but I like him. Yeah. Is, is that a paradox or not? No, I don't think so. Am I appalled by him? You betcha. What are you appalled by? So many things. It's a laundry list. <laughs> okay, give us a couple. The claim, I am a populist. Now, I'm no expert on populism, but I just don't get that populist vibe. Graduate of Harvard Business School, employee of Goldman Sachs, takes a lot of money from right-wing billionaires. A man of the people, for me, not so much. So what the hell is going on here? Do you think he traffics in hate? It's a little simplistic. Is hate certainly an element in all of this? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. But how can you be a populist and endorse Trump's tax plans. There's something deeply hypocritical, confused, nasty. You asked, is it about hate? In American Dharma, I call Trump the fuck you president. And why do I call him the fuck you president? Because he appeals to a lot of people who want to say fuck you to everything. If you've wanted to say fuck you to your family, to your neighbors, to the city in which you live, to your government. He's the ideal vehicle. Is that an ideology? Can we call it the fuck you <laughs> ideology? Just, just putting a descriptor before ideology doesn't make it an ideology, I don't think. Is it just an attitude or is it just an expression of anger? I would say closer to the latter, yes. People are very, very, very angry. It's not hard to figure out why, because there's a lot of things for people to be angry about. I suppose if you wanted to be angry, which I am, at income and wealth inequality in America, and you think that no one will ever do anything about it, it's a mixture of anger, futility, despair. So I learned from Joshua Green's book that Bannon's favorite movie was 12 O'Clock High, which I had never seen. And you begin your film with a scene from it. I most certainly do. And I watched 12 O'Clock High many times. Great movie. Gregory Peck's greatest performance. Amazing. Better than To Kill a Mockingbird. That's fighting words, but okay. Well, I don't want to get into a fight over this. <laughs> we won't. We're very peace-loving here. So I watched this film, 
which is a kind of nihilistic film. It's about winning at all costs, about maximum effort. Consider yourself, he tells his pilots, already dead. You go out there and you bomb the shit out of the enemy. You go out to win. Not to save your skin, not to have a future. You go out there to win at all costs. Bannon's favorite film. He also tells us, week one, Harvard Business School. They sit them all down and make them watch 12 o'clock high. <laughs> what does that say? Probably nothing good. This it is says, some years ago, because now I think they have, uh, you know, more of an ethics program. <laughs> they require yeah, people. Now they watch the Mr. Rogers movie. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they watch Fog of War. I wouldn't bet on it. So you have these views about Steve Bannon. He appalls you. We've started to talk a little bit about what he stands for. What were you hoping to get across to folks by making a movie almost exclusively about him? Do I think in those terms? Do I think, what am I going to get across by doing this? I usually don't. Maybe that's my trouble. I hope to learn who is this guy? What's going on here? What's going on inside of his head? Years ago, I used to think about internal and external stories. That most documentaries were external. How could you actually get inside of somebody's head? I didn't want to make films like Brand X where you tell a story about someone and then you get 20 different associates to comment. Oh, I think he's a really nice person. No, I don't think he's so nice. I think he's a very bad person. And on and on and on and on. So I thought, I don't want to do that. So you have Steve Bannon. I have one person to start off with. I don't interview anybody. McNamara, one person. Rumsfeld, one person. Bannon, one person. Nobody else. Same for me, Errol Morris, one person. Indeed. But this is a podcast. But if I ever did a movie about you, (laughs) Uh not out of the question. I'd be worried about what kind of person you think I am. (laughs) Well, we would have to find out. (laughs) It might be a curse. Oh, you know what? Errol Morris thinks you are the kind of person he should do a movie about. There's McNamara, Bannon, murderers, all sorts of other bad people. Is there a trend there? You tend to make movies. Stephen Hawking. That's the exception that proves the rule. Whatever that means. I've never, (laughs) ever, by the way, understood that expression. Why do you think he decided to cooperate with you? He loves my movies. He was a fan. I don't want to call him my number one fan. Jesus. But he had seen all of my movies. He had been at the premiere of The Fog of War at the Telluride Film Festival. I checked up on him. I asked my friend Tom Luddy, who runs the Telluride Film Festival, did Bannon buy a ticket that year? Was he really there? Was he there in the audience when I was on stage with McNamara? And indeed he was. Indeed he was. In fact, you know what movie of yours Steve Bannon likes? This one. You've made it a point to say, quote, I made an art film about a major figure who wants to destroy the world, and he liked it. That was perhaps my most problematic review. <laughs> Is that what you feel? Yeah. You wanted him not to like it. I don't know. I wanted him to like it. Okay, I'll fess up. Well, so he's appalling. Is the fact that you made a movie that he likes, does that say something about the film or does that say something about him? Probably it says something about both. I knew you were going to say that answer. How dare you? (laughs) Why? Why? It's an honest answer. I mean, I would like people to like my movies. I don't make movies so that people will dislike them. So the title of the movie again? American Dharma. What's Dharma? To me, it's the D's. 
duty, destiny, dharma. And he makes a big speech very early on in the movie that everything is ruled by the three Ds. Duty, destiny, dharma. Duty, destiny, dharma. Duty, destiny, dharma. Is he saying anything really? Indirectly, for me, he's saying you can justify anything this way. We're all on some kind of wheel of history, some fatalistic vision of how things have to be the way they are because that's the way they are. He has all of this pop history, the four turnings, and I don't like any of it. <laughs> what did Steve Bannon see in Donald Trump, and why did he work so hard to get him elected? He saw him, as he describes him in American Dharma, as an armor-piercing shell. A blunt force instrument also. A blunt force instrument also. As if that's the platonic ideal for a leader. If your aim, I think this comes very close to the underlying themes of the movie, if your aim is to destroy everything, if you have secretly or not so secretly a scorched earth policy, then that's your candidate. A guy untouched by morality, by rationality, really untouched by anything except by some insane desire to promote himself. Not even an agenda, but just to promote himself. Himself is the agenda. Does Bannon have an agenda that has more substance to it than Trump? I don't think so. It's just destroy the status quo. Destroy the status quo and more. Burn it down. Take it out. Clear the decks. It's anti-populism. That's what bothers me. That's what makes me think you're crazy. Do you just want to destroy everything? But do you think that's what Trump was really about? Or was he just about yeah, self-advancement? <laughs> self-advancement. I've often said, I think his principal goal in life, which has been achieved many times over, to be the most talked about human being on earth, which he is. Is it anything beyond that? Don't know him well enough, but it certainly looks that way. But Bannon actually has a somewhat different agenda to accomplish through this person who maybe only wants self-promotion, the goal of destruction. And were they a match made in heaven? Because it didn't last very long, did it? Still going on. Yeah, how so? If I believe a number of people, including the fake news New York Times, Bannon is once again advising Trump. Do you think Bannon can be useful to Trump in 2020? Yes, I do. How so? Well, just ask the question about 2016. Was he useful to Trump in 2016? Do I buy the claim that he was the kingmaker, that he was the person who principally secured the presidency for Donald Trump? kind of do. And I can even tell you why. Okay. Also keeping in mind that there's this perfect storm. 2016 is crazy. An election about sex, not about glass ceilings, but about something far, far more tawdry. I said this to Bannon at one point. It squares with my views about history. It isn't a set of strings being pulled, faded deeds and results. That history is chaotic, confused, proceeds often by happenstance. And my question has always been, what if Western civilization is ultimately brought down, destroyed, if you like, by one man's insatiable need to post to the internet pictures of his penis? 
what if that is what ultimately brings us all down? <laughs> now, this kind of few squares with, yeah, it's crazy out there. I run this one ad that was done for Trump. It's a crazy, crazy ad. Powerful one. Powerful ad linking Wiener's dick pics with Hillary's emails. Who thought of that? I look at that ad and I think to myself, oh, I get it. Trump's going to win. Did you think that? I wish I could say I did, <laughs> but I didn't see that ad because I live in Massachusetts. I wouldn't see that ad until I actually started to make the movie. In retrospect, you have a better sense of how Trump pulled it off. I do. I think there was a whole mess of historical accidents that worked to his advantage. Can a perfect storm be repeated in 2020? Maybe not that perfect storm, but something like it, yes. I never thought he could win the first time around. I was afraid he could win. I tried so hard to do commercials for Hillary. They didn't want me. We just don't want you. Did that offend you? Oh, sure. <laughs> Why not? It also is a feeling of frustration. I have this stupid belief, self-serving and stupid, that actually I can do interviews better than the next guy. I tried to do this for Kerry. I tried to do it for Hillary. That if you could put them in front of a camera and get them to talk like a human being instead of a political candidate, that it could inure to their benefit. Okay, that's the conceit in a nutshell. Does Donald Trump speak like a human being instead of a political candidate? I don't know how he speaks. He speaks in such a weird, confused way. Well, it's a good thing he had Bannon then. It is a good thing. Not for the country, but for him, yes. Then when I'm announced, it's like the Trump campaign's so out of business. This is just Trump getting vengeance by getting this mad bomber who's just going to wreak vengeance on all his enemies. The mad bomber being you. Yes. And it's the exact opposite. All we did is said, hey, we got to be maniacally focused, simplify everything, make her the spokesman and the guardian of a corrupt and incompetent status quo, an elite. And you make Trump the agent of change that President Obama wasn't. That scene where Bannon looks like the cat who swallowed the canary, reporters are filing into this room, the Clinton accusers are all ready to pounce. Let's take a step back because one of the most fraught moments for Trump in 2016 was when the Access Hollywood tape comes out. And that was a real moment of peril for his campaign, right? And Steve Bannon speaks about it with you in the movie. And it's whatever you think of that and how that turned out. It's a compelling few minutes in the film. 12 o'clock high. He does a survey. It's sort of like General Savage talking to his pilots in the Quonset hut. Who's going to be on that plane? Meaning... Who's still with us and who's gone wobbly? Exactly. And Bannon goes around the room. Yep. And what happens? He picks the people. They get on the plane or they don't get on the plane. He had an interesting exchange with Chris Christie. In the film, according to Bannon, former Governor Chris Christie says, this is not about the campaign anymore. The campaign's finished. This is about ruining your brand. And Bannon says back to him what? He says, plane leaves at 11. If you're on the plane, you're on the team. If you're not on the plane, you're not on the team. 12 o'clock high. Yeah, they might have changed the plane to 12. <laughs> Do you think anyone else could have gotten through that moment? You know, lots of pundits like to say no one else could have survived that except somebody who doesn't have any shame, doesn't have any remorse, and just blunt force proceeds forward. 
I just started thinking about this talking to you. One of the things I found really troubling about talking movies with Bannon, we watch movies together, we talk about the movies, what does this scene what mean? Yeah, there's a lot of movies, you have a lot of movie scenes in your film. Yes. Yeah. Movies within movies within movies. Right. It's very meta. <laughs> Indeed. And we interpret them differently, sometimes radically differently. You know, it would be meta if, if you and Steve Bannon both watched Rashomon and interpreted that movie differently. I have an essay on Rashomon called <laughs> The Rashomon of Rashomon. Because I, I have didn't know that. my own theories, my own Rashomon-like theories no about doubt. Rashomon. No doubt. No doubt you do. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but it's like some kind of badass Rorschach test where you show two people the same thing and they come away with two different impressions. It seems to me the essence of our time, seriously. In part, if you look back, could you make the argument that even though the Access Hollywood tape was temporarily bad for his campaign, in some ways it has been an enormous strength for his presidency because all these allies who could potentially go wobbly have a memory of President Trump surviving that, which they know they could never survive. And, and you think, how do you get past that? Nothing can fell this guy. And so when the Ukraine scandal occurs, when Mueller starts investigating, those same people, what's going on? What's the real in their head? The real in their head is, that guy said this stuff about women, and it didn't matter. This stuff is nothing compared to that. There is no kryptonite in this case. Right. There's nothing that can bring him down. A feeling of insane invulnerability. But how do stories like that, given how many books you read, end well? I don't know this story is going to end well. People endlessly ask me, why did my movie make people so angry? And people would start yowling. Reviewers would say really, really nasty stuff. I mean, nasty stuff, hurtful stuff. People would say this movie shouldn't be seen. There's another word, aside from deplatforming, which is another one of my unfavorite words. People started using the word toxic. My movie was toxic. It was poison. It's going to hurt people. This is promoting an evildoer. Is it? No! Tell me, how you, tell me how you feel, Errol. You know my problem with the left? Not left enough for me. There was a related controversy connected to Steve Bannon. I had David Remnick the editor of The New Yorker on a few weeks ago. I think ago. I'm familiar with the name. Yeah. <laughs> to remind people who don't listen every week, Steve Bannon was invited to The New Yorker Festival and the editor, David Remnick, was going to interview him on stage and there was a mini rebellion within the magazine and among people who are readers of the magazine and a lot of people said they wouldn't show up to the festival and some other names said they wouldn't agree to be interviewed on, on the festival stage. And so then The New Yorker reversed its decision and disinvited Steve Bannon. Do you have a take on that? Okay. I make a lot of films about self-deception, and as I like to point out, self-deception affects everybody, including me. <laughs> I'm not immune. The week before the film premieres at the Venice Film Festival, and by the way, it gets a standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival. People applaud to the entire credits. The week before, Remnick disinvites Bannon, or if you like the terminology, deep platforms Bannon. He writes a piece about why he's done it, which I don't think really is such a good piece of writing. I don't blame Remnick for this, but I do think it was unfortunate for me and for my movie that it gave people permission 
that this is really what you should do. You should silence him. You should deplatform him. What's so interesting about this period in American history, people are so, particularly people on the left, are so frightened and in such a state of despair and a feeling of impotence, a feeling of powerlessness. If this happened and it did happen, what does that mean? If I can't stop it? I called it for a long time, I called it, I want my mommy politics. Because in the wake of the 2016 election, it seemed the only thing you could do is crawl under the bed and start saying over and over and over again, I want my mommy. Mommy, mommy, please make it stop, mommy. I don't like this, mommy. This is very bad. It doesn't square with my idea of America. What's the better approach and attitude in your view? Engagement. I like thinking. Okay, reading is a vehicle to thinking and more thinking. I like thinking about stuff. I make movies because I think they're investigative. It's not just simply to promulgate a view that I hold in advance. It's to find something out that I don't know. And I found out a lot of stuff I didn't know. And I'm happy I made the movie. And I'm proud of the movie. And I don't like all of my movies, but I do like this one. <laughs> So one thing that we all focus on when we think about Trump and Bannon, and I didn't see so much of this in the film, was how does Bannon think of the president's constant lying and distortion of the truth? He would say, and then this could be another example of constant lying, he says he's not lying. He's not a crook. He says it in my movie. Well, he says he's not corrupt also. You ask him about the corruption. He's, he's like, not he, corrupt. He's, he's a real estate guy. He's a real <laughs> estate answer. guy, Yeah. <laughs> That's not quite And an I say something to him to the effect, well, you know, they're corrupt real estate guys, too. Yeah, I'm, yeah he's I'm a familiar. real estate guy. He can't possibly be corrupt. <laughs> Is he corrupt? That's no. a joke. No, he's, he's a casino guy. <laughs> That's what the hopeful people say. Look, don't worry about Trump going to war because he's only interested in building casinos and hotels. And if you have a war in an area, you can't build a hotel there. So one is supposed to, I suppose, take some kind of comfort from that. You said something that's been ringing in my ears since it was brought to my attention, knowing that you were showing up, because it has a lot of resonance today, but you said it 20 years ago, almost exactly 20 years ago. It sounds like something you've said often. You said, you know, I'm fond of saying that human credulity is unfettered. People can believe utterly anything, and that is scary, because you can't reason with these people. You can't present arguments in a clear, logical, cogent fashion, examine them, and come to a rational conclusion. It doesn't quite work that way. I think that belief survives all challenges. That's kind of a doozy of a statement and rings true. Yeah. Is that true of all people? Same DNA, you know. Is that why Trump got elected? Or how he remains in power? Because credulity is unfettered? Yes. Doesn't matter how irrational he is. To me, the irrationality itself is deeply worrisome. I think a lot of people don't even notice it. Now, if that's true, that's not a good thing. At the very end of Fog of War, McNamara says one of the most despairing things I've ever heard. He says, rationality will not save us. Here's a man who's devoted his life to rational thinking, or at least what he takes to be rational thinking, and he sees it may have done him no damn good. An interesting thing for him to say. 
I should stop citing this, but I like this essay so very, very much. It's an essay written by Arthur Schopenhauer. People don't know about it, but it is so very, very good, so deep and so dark. It's called The Art of Being Right. So Schopenhauer, in his first paragraph, kindly tells us, there are two ways to win an argument. There's logic and there's dialectic. Well, everybody knows you can never win an argument through logic. So let's move quickly on to dialectic. <laughs> and he proceeds to give you 36 ways to win an argument any way you can. And they're really, really funny. I was going to do some godforsaken essay on Schopenhauer and the modus operandi of the Trump administration. For example, Schopenhauer says, if someone has humiliated you, shown you to be a complete ass, your arguments to be totally specious, you look them in the eye and you say, I'm really glad you've come around to my way of thinking. <laughs> right. We're fucked. All right, and I say something hopeful. You know the two lines, I'll give you two lines about hope that I very much like. One comes from a discussion between Franz Kafka and his close friend Max Broad. And Max asks Franz, Franz, surely you believe in hope? And Franz looks at him and says, of course, just not for us. Thanks for that. <laughs> I, I appreciate that very much. Um, now I'm going to have a drink. <laughs> so one, one of the things about this movie and about interviewing people who are not likable, and you've gotten some criticism for not, I, I guess, you know, not attacking the guy and rather letting him speak and expose his thinking and letting people think for themselves, which sometimes works. How do you think about interviewing? I've been intimidated a little bit because you're the, one of the great interviewers of all time and, you know, I've been doing this only a little while. How do you think about interviewing? And is it a different approach? I just wrote a piece for Airmail, which I think is kind of good about interviewing. It's, among other things, about what I call the difficult question that you're supposed to in an interview. Oh, boy, I can see a critique of me coming now. Go ahead. Not really. I okay. actually enjoy talking to you. I'm sorry. All right. That's good. <laughs> Keep that in. I don't really believe in adversarial interviews. I don't think you learn very much. You create a kind of theater, a gladiatorial theater, which may be satisfying to an audience. But if the goal is to learn something that you don't know, that's not the way to go about doing it. In fact, it's the way to destroy the possibility of ever hearing anything interesting or new. So I guess I don't believe in them. People have made the point with respect to Donald Trump that combative interviews don't necessarily yield that much, although there's an argument that you're supposed to do in real-time fact-checking. And the time she's gotten in the most trouble is when he's been asked somewhat softball questions and he just reveals himself. Yes. And talks <laughs> and says what's on his mind because his is guard my, is down a little bit. This is my experience, for better or for worse, as an investigator, as an interviewer, that the most interesting, and excuse me for repeating something you just said, the most interesting and most revealing comments have come not as a result of a question at all, but having set up a situation where people actually want to talk to you and want to reveal something to you. There was a moment in The Thin Blue Line with Emily Miller that I like to cite where she volunteered the information. I knew that the lineup sheet for Emily Miller was missing from the file. Hmm. Why are there other lineup sheets, but there's no lineup sheet here? 
I didn't really think that much about it, but I was aware of it. And I'm talking to her, and she tells me that she failed to pick out the defendant in a police lineup. Now, this is a woman who took the stand and said, that's the man, that's the man who shot the cop. So she tells me she failed to pick him out in a police lineup. And I say, I don't think I was even trying to be clever. I just think I was thinking. I said, you failed to pick him out in the police lineup. How do you know? She says, I know I picked out the wrong man because the police officer sitting next to me, you know, this is like right out of Perry Mason. I know because the police officer sitting next to me told me I picked out the wrong man and then pointed out the right man. She was a moron, by the way. (laughs) Pointed out the right man so I wouldn't make that mistake again. Great. Terrific. I don't even think I knew what I was hearing at first. I always liked in Jerry Lewis movies that people would say horrible things to Jerry Lewis. And he would just simply smile and nod and agree. <laughs> then he'd walk out of the room and start screaming. It's an effective coping mechanism. <laughs> yes, indeed. You know, that film that you made, very consequential in a particular way. Got someone exonerated. I got someone out of prison. I got his conviction overturned. How would you feel about that? It's one of the best days of my life. It's one of the better things that I've ever done. And I feel lucky and immensely proud. And I don't believe today, in today's climate, I would have been successful. Why do you say that? This is Dallas, okay? I mean, this is a long discussion, but I'll make it a short discussion. We went up once before a federal judge. I had uncovered so many things. I was a private detective for years in Manhattan. Went down to interview this Dallas psychiatrist, Dr. Death. I said, thank God I don't have to be a private detective anymore. Wrong. I spent two and a half years investigating this cop killing in Dallas. The federal judge wouldn't overturn the case. So it went to a state judge. Get this. A black Muslim Republican judge in Dallas. How many of them are there? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. You kind of do know. (laughs) Might be unique. And he listened to this stuff, and he overturned the conviction. And the prosecutors in Dallas said, well, we're just going to retry the fucker. And I knew that they wouldn't, because there was no longer any case against him. Among other things, although I don't think this is what really did it, among other things, I got the real killer essentially to admit his culpability for the crime. Have you thought about replicating that kind of work? Well, I think about it all the time. It's so hard. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but overturning... It's hard. But there have, been other, there have been other things like your film, including a famous podcast, that cast doubt on convictions and maybe cause people to reinvestigate. And I just wonder if that's potentially another future project of yours. Well, I wrote a book about the Jeffrey McDonald case called Wilderness of Error, taken from a line of Edgar Allan Poe. It's interesting. I mean, this is a long discussion in and of itself because... Every private detective, every investigator, it's the wet dream that you can overturn a conviction, that you can find the truth as a great believer in the truth, that you can actually, if you work hard enough, long enough, look into enough closets and under enough beds that you can find the truth. And sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. 
And one of the odd things about looking for the truth, if you can't find it, you can never know that it can never be found. Something could turn up, or documents could have been corrupted, lost, adulterated. It happens. Even the transcript of a phone conversation from the President of the United States can undergo elisions of one form or another. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. <laughs> you said something else about interviewing that I want to know if you really believe or you still believe. You said what I think is undoubtedly true, shut up and let people talk. Then you said, listening to what people were saying wasn't even important, but it was important to look as if you were listening to what people were saying. And then you say, actually, listening to what people are saying to me interferes with looking as if you were listening to what people are saying. So I have not listened to one thing you've said. Good. But I hope I've given the appearance you've uh, done of listen, <laughs> listening to really, what you've really said. great job. You, you don't really believe that. Probably you, you not. listen. I'm perverse. But, to, but what it can is I a say? clever thing to say. I'm always amazed in every interview I've ever done, listening to it after the fact, editing with it, that I really haven't heard it at all. And why is that? Is that, is that because you're partially thinking about the next question? I think I'm thinking so hard and listening so hard that I don't even hear what's being said at times, not always, at times. Well, because you're in the process. You know, I have that too. I'll do an interview for an hour and then someone on the team will tell me about something from the interview. And I don't recall it. There you go. Even though I elicited it. And you were probably listening intently. Right. Maybe I'm just forgetful. I don't think it's forgetful. I think it's odd. Uh, when I first started doing interviews, I was interviewing murderers in Wisconsin and in Northern California. It's my favorite line to my wife when I first met her. I was talking to a mass <laughs> murderer, but thinking of you. <laughs> and she didn't find that creepy. We've been married for a long time. We've known each other for close to 50 years. Maybe she did find it creepy. No, I've seen what she said. She thought it was very romantic. Yeah. If I recall correctly, she said it was really hard to date someone else after that. It's a nice thing to say. It is. I love my wife. I would go into a room, put my Sony cassette tape recorder down, and would be already running. So I would turn it on, it would be running, and then I would put the tape recorder down where the person I was speaking to, my subject, whatever, could see it. Clearly, they could see there is the tape recorder. I wouldn't ask permission. I would just make it clear that I was recording, and then I would proceed. And I had this game, this stupid game I played with myself. How long could I remain silent? And keep someone talking. And I finally achieved a full hour where my voice was not on the tape. And I was so, so incredibly proud of myself. <laughs> like you did it. It's some kind of special Olympics. It would make podcast interviewing a lot easier. I'd come in and maybe I could leave, do some other work. Exactly. But does that require a talkative subject? Well, it certainly helps. Yeah. And I would always transcribe these interviews. I would sit and transcribe everything. And I became transfixed by language, by how people talk, how they interrupt themselves, how they create a narrative, et cetera, et cetera. I would transcribe everything myself. I don't do that anymore. I feel like I've lost something. For your purposes, when you ask questions, do you think about whether it's a short question versus a long question? or a leading question versus an open question? Do you think about those things? Mm -mm. You just ask what pops into your head. Yeah. I don't like 
having lists of questions. I always think an interview is going to be infirm if there's a list of questions and the interviewer ticks them off one by one. It tells me that they're not really engaged on some level. Well, they're pretending to listen. Maybe they are even <laughs> listening. Uh, no, I don't have a list of questions either, as you may have been I, able to say. I have noted this. You have noted that. And many of the questions that I asked you, I didn't know I was going to ask you. We share a common interest in a person who, in the annals of interrogation, is quite a significant figure, Hans Scharf. I love Hans Scharf. Half a chapter of my book is devoted to Hans Scharf. Oh, good Lord. So who, do I have to read your book? See, you this, don't is have the to read it. this is the literacy problem. <laughs> you don't have to now read it. I have to go out and I have to read your book. No, I'm disappointed that you didn't read it in advance of this interview. I'm going that to read it. That tells me a lot about you. I'm going to read it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll go to the Strand. I'll so get it tonight. It's, uh, the Strand has, has signed copies, so you'll get a signed copy. Okay. And to remind people, Hans Scharf was the most successful Nazi interrogator of downed American airmen. To remind people, you think that they well because I've it, talked about it. They I've knew talked it, about but it they, the, they momentarily. <laughs> oh yes, Han Scharf. I have talked about him on the show before, and some people are loyal listeners, so I'm reminding <laughs> reminding them. And he did not use even in, even though it was Nazi Germany, he did not use torture, he did not use intimidation. What did he do? He was nice. He talked to people. He was interested in them, and that worked. Yep, because that always works. And what happened to Hans Scharf? I end my chapter with this interesting historical tidbit. Tell Good us. Good Lord, I have to read this immediately. <laughs> Tell us. He emigrated to the United States and... Was welcomed into the United States. Well, of course, like yeah. all Nazis. And he went to work for Disney World. And he became an expert on creation of elaborate stained glass windows for Disney World. So we should always remember that being an accomplished Nazi can be a kind of prerequisite for employment at the Disney Corporation. Oh, boy. I didn't, I didn't know we were going that direction. <laughs> you set it up! Um, yeah, he became an accomplished mosaic artist. And in fact... I'm never going to work again as a result of this. You realize that? I'm that was my goal all, completely all along. Finished. All along. His strategy of interrogation is being taught as we speak in various places in this country. Who would have thought that? It works. And another amazing thing, probably it's discussed in detail in your book, which I regrettably have not yet read, but will read. Okay. He remained friends with those people he interrogated long after the war. They called him the gentleman interrogator. I never got to interrogate anybody. Maybe someday I could interrogate you. Um, no. <laughs> oh. Maybe. We can oh, talk. We can I have a chat. I was trying to be nice to it. I thought if I a... put it in a kind of non-threatening, sympathetic way, you might agree. But, you know, it's interesting. When I was a prosecutor and I worked with prosecutors and you would do questioning of people who were lying to you, one time early on, there was someone in the room who called a break. It was the interpreter and pulled me out and started to tell me, you know that the guy's lying to you. I said, yeah, I know he's lying to me. Like, Why aren't you calling him on it? Because I want to see all the lies he's prepared to tell for a variety of reasons. And that's why I'm being nice because you want to have people unfurl and say all the things you're going to say. And then when you go back at them, it's a lot more powerful. So we've gone a long time. You've been very patient. I've enjoyed it. Is that patience? Uh, no. I that was actually, I was fishing for a compliment. Uh, <laughs> do you have advice for how people should cope with the next year of turmoil in American politics? I think we should all think very, very hard about what kind of a country we want and the kind of danger that we're now in and Think of what we can do to help the country achieve a better outcome in this next election. We're in peril. It is a dark time for America. 
America is in danger. One thing about the Trump administration, I think it's the most nefarious thing about the Trump administration, is it makes you wonder, it makes me wonder, was I always delusional about America and American values? Everything that I thought or I hoped for or I believed in. Not that I had this slavish belief that everything was hunky-dory in America. I did not. But I thought there was this idea, idea of equality, of fairness, opportunity, that seems gone. And the loss of that seems more terrible than anything. You know, maybe America can never be made right I think it's incredibly ironic that progressives have become conservatives because they often think, I wish things could just simply go back to the way they were rather than the way they are. I don't know what happens next, but I do know that guy has to be defeated and sooner rather than later. Errol Morris, congratulations on the film. Thanks Thank for you. being on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. I enjoyed it. Good. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the Stay Tuned bonus with Errol Morris and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, go to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show today by making an incredibly obvious point. But it is a kind of obvious point that needs to be made over and over and over again and over again, and then a few more times after that. And the obvious point is that elections matter and your vote counts. Just look at this week. There was an election in Virginia. There was an election in Kentucky. There was an election in Pennsylvania. Actually, there's elections all over the place with some interesting results. And as we think about 363 or 364 days from now, when there's an incredibly consequential election for the country, when we'll decide the fate of Donald Trump, whether it'll be a second term of Donald Trump or the first term of someone else, think about what's happened the last year, starting with 2018. Lots of people wondered whether that would be an election of consequence or not. And whatever happens with the impeachment proceeding and whatever happens if there is an impeachment and ultimately a conviction in the Senate, the only reason that we are hearing about the Ukraine call, the only reason we're getting testimony from people like Vinland and others is that there was a change in power in the House of Representatives. Because in November of 2018, there was an election and the chairmanships of various committees changed. And one of those chairmen is Adam Schiff, another is Jerry Nadler. And only because there was an election and a switch in power has oversight been available. So whether or not you draw comfort, depending on your point of view, from the new governor-elect, it seems, although it's not quite fully decided yet, but it seems, governor-elect Andy Bashir of Kentucky, who defeated what everyone has said was a flawed candidate in Matt Bevan, or whether you take comfort from the fact, depending on your point of view, that both houses of the Virginia legislature have now flipped to the Democratic side for the first time since 1993, or any one of the other elections where it seems there's a groundswell of support for change, particularly in the suburbs, take that to heart and remember that things only change if you vote. And you can't put all of your faith and hope either in a special counsel or in a chairman of some committee, although they're doing God's work. The most important thing you can do for your country, for yourself, for your community, Whatever your point of view is, is to vote and encourage other people to vote. That is my obvious point for the day, and I'll be making it again and again. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. 
Thanks again to my guest, Errol Morris. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. And the Cafe team is David Tatashore, Julia Doyle, Carla Pierini, David Kurlander, Calvin Lord, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.